Let's go ahead and get started. If you will, please turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 is the passage we read earlier. If you want to use the Bible provided, it is page 861. 861. So, if you were like me, if you were like me, there are times where you dream of being great. You dream of greatness. Maybe you uh, read a biography of some great man or woman. You read about uh, Teddy Roosevelt or, or Winston Churchill or Harriet Tubman, and you, or you watch a movie on, on some great person, and you say, that could be me. That could be me. But if you're like me, soon you're going to be humbled and realize that you are just a normal person. That's not you. You are a normal person. And usually for me, that comes through some kind of embarrassing moment, right? We've all experienced that, some kind of embarrassing moment, something you do that is just totally embarrassing. Maybe you felt that this morning. Maybe you walked in here and, and, and tripped on the carpet walking in and some people saw you. Or maybe you, you talked to someone who's been in your ABF for years and for some reason you just blanked on their name. And so you called them, called them the wrong name. We've all experienced those embarrassing moments. One extreme example, um, I saw on YouTube the other day, and you can, you can look it up, it's a hilarious video, of this 14-year-old kid uh, walking through a museum. And so he's walking through this museum, he's sipping on a Coke, talking to his friends, and his foot just catches on something and he trips. So he reaches out to stop his fall, but when he reaches out, his arm goes straight through a $1.5 million painting from the 17th century. And so you can look it up, the kid like stops, no one else sees it, and he's like, what do I do, right? My life is over. That's embarrassing, right? That's embarrassing. So maybe, hopefully, you haven't experienced that level of embarrassment, but we have all done embarrassing things. And here's what you've probably figured out. If you do something embarrassing, it'll be okay, right? If you do something embarrassing, it'll be okay because someone you know is going to do something even more embarrassing shortly after, and everyone's going to forget about you. Soon you'll be laughing about it. Soon you'll be able to talk with your friends about that embarrassing thing you did, and it'll all be funny. But here's what I want to talk about this morning. Everyone in here has had embarrassing things happen to us, but the truth is, if we're honest, everyone in here also has embarrassing things about us. And that's not funny to talk about, right? We all have things about us that we are embarrassed about. We all have things where when we look in the mirror, maybe it's a physical thing, and we look in the mirror and we say, I hate that about myself. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's a sin you've been struggling with since you were a teenager, and you thought, well, one day I won't have to deal with that. But here you are decades later, and it is still popping up in your life. Maybe that's what it is that brings you embarrassment. Maybe that's what it is that brings you shame. For many people, shame comes from something traumatic that has happened in your past, something that was out of your control. You were abused in some way. You were talked to or treated in a way that said you're worthless, and eventually you started believing it, and that brings you shame. So it's funny down the road to tell stories of the embarrassing things that have happened to us, but it's not fun to talk about the embarrassing things about us. But this morning, we're going to read three stories. We're going to read three stories from Luke 5, the ones that Pastor Sam read, about people who are ashamed for various reasons, ashamed for things they've done, ashamed for things about them. But we're going to read about these people. We're going to read about what Jesus does when he meets them. One Christian author defines shame this way. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are inherently flawed, unacceptable, and unworthy of love because of something you've done 
something done to you or something about you. Shame says, I'm ugly, I'm awkward, I'm disgusting, I'm unwanted, I'm weak, I'm worthless, I'm a failure. If you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling that, if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, that's me, what does Jesus want to say to you? What does Jesus say to you this morning? Let's start by reading Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Luke 5, 12 and 13. It says, while he was in one of the cities, being Jesus, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. So Jesus meets this man, and it says that he is full of leprosy. And you're probably pretty aware of what leprosy is. It's a skin disease, right? It's a skin disease. We've probably heard all about it. But just some details that are a little bit gross, but help you know, kind of paint this picture. Leprosy would, would, would bring these awful sores on your body. And so it's nothing that you can hide. It's affecting your skin. People are going to see right off the bat that you have leprosy. And these sores would be super painful at first. They're, they're going to smell bad. You can't even, even wash yourself because of the pain that it brings to touch the sores. And it's just this awful disease. And it keeps on getting worse and worse and worse. Eventually, the pain of the, the disease isn't the problem. It's the fact that all, that all of a sudden it messes with your body so much that you can't feel anything. So a lot of us, when we think of lepers, we may think of people with their limbs falling off, right? Or their fingers falling off or their toes falling off. That's usually how they're depicted. But really, it's not the disease that causes your, your limbs or your fingers or your toes to fall off. It's the fact that you can't feel anything, right? It, your, your body gets so messed up, you can't feel anything. So this is a disgusting example, but it happened. If you're sleeping outside, as these lepers would, and, and a rat comes up and starts chewing on your toe or your finger, you can't feel it, right? You can't feel it. So you wake up, and all of a sudden, a sudden your finger's gone, and you know nothing about it. It just destroys your body inch by inch by inch, and it gets worse and worse and worse. Eventually, it affects your eyes they start, they start bulging out of your head. It affects your throat. It affects your brain. It affects every single part of you. It destroys you inch by inch. And it says this man is full of leprosy. Full of leprosy. So he's in the advanced stages here. The disease has taken him over. Leprosy is a physical disease. That's what we often think of it as. But it also has a social dimension to it. The Old Testament talks a lot about lepers. But just listen to these two verses. Leviticus 13 45 and 46, it says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. As a leper, you can't touch another human out of fear that the disease would spread. Lepers would be sent away from their friends and family and the rest of society to be together on their own so no one else caught the disease. But not only was the leper affected physically and socially, but there was also a spiritual element, and this is probably the worst part. A leper was viewed as a sinner who couldn't be made clean, right? There were thoughts then that, that this man or woman had leprosy because of something they had done, a sin they had committed, a sin that their parent had committed, and it got passed down to them. So you couldn't go to the temple to worship. You couldn't be with other people. So you couldn't worship God in the temple. And not only that, not only that, 
But everyone thought, since you're unclean and God is clean, there is a separation there. There's this chasm, so you cannot have a relationship with God. God is holy, you're unclean, so you're a sinner who can never be made clean. So imagine this man is you. Imagine this man is you. You've seen lepers, you, you know how bad it is, but one day you wake up and you just got a weird spot on your arm. And you go to the doctor and, and, and he checks it out and he says, you got leprosy. So all of a sudden you are sent away, all of a sudden you are sent away from your family, you're sent away from your friends, you can't go to church anymore. And maybe one of the, the, the worst parts, the parts that makes me, just pains me the most is they would have to, when they're walking down the road, if they saw another clean person, they would have to yell out, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, to get them out of the way as fast as they could. So this thing that you're ashamed of, all of a sudden you have to, every time you see someone else, you have to yell, I'm unclean, get away. That would be awful, wouldn't it? That would be awful. Imagine being this man. Everyone shuns him for years. He has not felt the touch of another human being. But then he meets Jesus. But then he meets Jesus. He sees Jesus walking down the road, and we would think maybe he's heard about the things Jesus has done. He, he knows that Jesus isn't just a normal guy, and he sees Jesus walking at him. And he's supposed to stay away. Jesus is clean. He's unclean. He's supposed to get away from him as far as he can, but instead he gets up the confidence to go to him. Maybe a last-ditch effort. And he goes and he falls down in front of Jesus, and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He says, Jesus, I know that you're not just a normal guy. I've heard of what you can do. I know you can help me. But here's the sad thing. Look at what he says. He says, I know you can heal me if you will. If you will. What is he thinking? Right? He's thinking Jesus is going to do to him what everyone else has. If you will. I know you can do it if you will. He thinks Jesus is going to say, sinner, unclean, get away from me. But that's not what Jesus does. Think of the beauty of this. It says that Jesus touched him. We can, just, we can just go right past that, breeze right past that. But here's this man that no one can touch, but Jesus touches him. And it's not like a cover your mouth and your face and, and get away touch. It's a, a loving touch. <laughs> it's a loving touch. And Jesus says, I will be clean. And the man is healed. He says, I will be clean. Jesus says, no one else may want you, but I do. You're clean now because I made you clean. Aren't there times in life where we all feel like this man? Maybe we don't know the, the, sim we don't know the symptoms of, of leprosy. We, we haven't had you know, our, our digits fall off. We haven't had an arm fall off. We don't know that. But we feel like this man. We feel ashamed about something about us. We feel like no one can understand what we're going through. We feel like no one wants to be around us. But we see what happens here if we will run to Jesus in our shame. He will do the same thing he did for this man. He will say, I love you and I want you. So here's a question for you to think about. What do you do when you blow it? Because we all blow it. What do you do when you blow it? What do you do when you feel ashamed? What do you do when you feel dirty like this leper? Do you run to Jesus or do you try to hide from him? Do you run to Jesus or do you try to hide for him, from him? Because this story shows us that we don't have to clean ourselves up to run to him. The leper didn't clean himself up to run to Jesus. He went in all of his dirtiness. We can take our sin and our shame to him. So here's what you need to think about. The litmus test of whether you really 
truly understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. When you fail, do you run away in shame and try to clean yourself up before you run to Jesus? Or do you run straight to him with your sin and shame and say, I know you're the only one who can make me clean? Do you truly understand the gospel? What do you do when you fail? And here's what's amazing about this story. What happens when clean comes in contact with unclean? The clean becomes unclean, right? The clean becomes unclean. If you put a group of sick people in a room and put a healthy person in them, the sick people don't get healthy. The healthy person gets sick. Hopefully you didn't wake up this morning and your, your child is throwing up and you said, oh, my daughter's throwing up. I'm going to take her to the nursery with all the other healthy kids and maybe she'll get healthy. It's not going to work that way. There are going to be some parents in here who are going to need to talk after the service, right? It doesn't work that way. When healthy comes in contact with sick, the healthy becomes sick. The clean becomes dirty. But throughout the Gospels, we see that it's different with Jesus. Jesus is contagiously clean. He is contagiously clean. When clean Jesus comes in contact with dirty, the dirty becomes clean. We see it over and over again, and we see it here. So after Jesus heals this man, word starts getting around about him. And so people knew this leper, they knew that he was, he was dying, they knew that he was sick, they knew that he was dirty, and all of a sudden he is healed. And so what are you going to do if you're sick? You're going to get to Jesus as quick as you can. And it says that Jesus was teaching in a house. And so this house, when you, when you picture the scene, they've done excavations of houses in this area. Imagine a small house, like 15 feet across. So there's not much room in here. But Jesus is teaching, and everyone's trying to get to him. So people are all around him. People are outside the windows. They're trying to look in. They're trying to look through the door. Anything they can do to get to Jesus. Well, these men, they're good friends, right? They are good friends, and they have this friend who is a paralytic, and they need to get him to Jesus no matter what. they got to get him to Jesus. And so they climb up on the roof. They kind of dig a hole. They move some of the tiles. They lower him through on his stretcher so that Jesus can heal him. Imagine that scene. Imagine if that happened here. Pastor Sam's up here speaking, and all of a sudden, you see this stretcher start to be lowered down through the ceiling. That would get your attention, right? So Jesus is teaching. This stretcher comes down in front of him, and Jesus eventually does what they want him to do. He eventually heals this man, but did you notice he does something else first? He does something else first. He looks at this man, who obviously they want to get him there to be healed, but he looks at this man, and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And, and I could, there's so much to talk about here. There's so much to talk about here. I'm doing three stories here that each deserve like two sermons apiece. So I can't get into it. But here's what I want you to see just from that one statement right there. Jesus is making a very important claim about himself. He is making a very important claim about himself. By saying that this guy's sins are forgiven, he is saying to this room, I am God. I am God. How do we know? First of all, the Pharisees get really upset, right? They know what he's claiming about himself. They get really mad. But we know Jesus is claiming to be God because here's the thing. Who has the power to forgive, forgive a sin? Who has the power to forgive a sin? It's the person that a sin is against. Here's an example. And this is what I've always used with the students. So it's a little bit, little bit juvenile, but it really makes the point really well. So let's imagine this scene men in here. Let's imagine this for you. Let's say that, that it's, it's Thanksgiving dinner, 
and you're having a friendly discussion with a family member. But this friendly discussion, as they sometimes do, quickly turns into an argument, right? And so you're arguing about politics or, or Tennessee football or, you know, whatever, uh, theology, whatever, fill in the blank, whatever you would argue with a family member about. So maybe this has gone on for a few years and, and your family members just had enough. And so you don't even see it coming. But he cocks back his fist and punches you right in the face. And so before you know it, you're laying on the ground and maybe you have a little blood run out of your mouth and you're trying to figure out what happened. Like I was just eating my turkey and all of a sudden I'm on the ground, knocked out. And then you see your wife walking over to this family member. And you're thinking, there we go. Get, get him, honey. Get him. Let him have it. And she walks up and she puts her hand on his shoulder and she says, what you just did there to my husband, I forgive you. Men, what would you do? You would freak out. You would freak out. You would say, you can't do that. I have to forgive him. I have to forgive them because I'm the one who got punched, right? The one who can forgive the sin is the one that the sin is against. Someone who the sin isn't against can't forgive the sin. The one who got punched has to forgive the sin. So why can Jesus forgive this man's sins? Because the Bible teaches that any sin we commit, whether it's against another person or against nobody else, any sin we commit, commit is against God. Every sin we commit, commit is rebellion against the creator and sustainer of the universe, God. So Jesus, by claiming to forgive sins, is saying to this room, clearly, I am God. And here's the implications of that. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or even if you are a Christian, you can't be lukewarm about Jesus. When he claimed this, you cannot be lukewarm about him. There are three options about who Jesus was because of this claim. Three options. Either he's a liar, and we should hate him, because he's led millions and millions of stray, astray. Either he's a maniac who actually thought he was God and he's not, so he doesn't deserve our worship then, or he truly is who he says he is. I'm going to read what C.S. Lewis said. He made that argument the best, and he says things a lot better than I ever could. So here's what he said. He said, among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the, de the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he who he says he is, or is he not? That's the question you got to answer. Our story continues in verse 27. It says this, it says, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made, a great fe made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well need, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is walking through town, and he sees Levi, who's a tax collector. And we know in the other Gospels that Levi is Matthew, right? So we know him by two different names here. But he sees Levi, he sees Matthew, whatever you want to call him. And, and Levi would have been, been treated very poorly by the people around him, been very, treated very poorly by his community, kind of like the leper, but for a very different reason. The leper's treated poorly because of something about him. Levi is treated poorly because of something that he has done. Levi is a tax collector. Now, we don't have much of a, a category for that kind of thing, but here's a, a tax collector was hated more than anyone else. A tax collector was the sinner of all sinners. Because at this point in history, there is a great superpower who rules over most of the earth. And this superpower, Rome, doesn't have helicopters or planes or trains. So they can't get from this area, this, over this vast area that they control, they can't get from one area to another very quickly. So what do you do? You get a huge army, you spread that army over all the area, and you have them bully anyone who gets in their way. So that's what Rome is doing here, and they're doing it here to the Jews. But what they would do, this army, it needed money, right? You had to pay for this army. So they would have these tax collectors take money from the area to pay for this army that was harassing them. And they would recruit local men to, to do this tax collecting. So Levi is a Jew, and his job is to collect money for the Romans from other Jews who hate the Romans, right? And to make matters worse, the way that Levi made his money is the Romans would tell him, all right, we need $100 a week from every family, but anything you take over that is yours. So Levi, instead of taking $100 a week, he's taking $150 a week, and there's nothing the people can do about it. There's nothing the people can do about it. How do you think the people felt about Levi? They were hated. They were traitors. They were despised. So you couldn't really do anything to these guys, right? They're, they're protected by Rome. But one thing you could do is you could make them feel really awful about themselves. You could harass them to make them feel really horrible about themselves. And that's where Levi is. He's probably making money, but he has to be ashamed of what he's doing. He's cheating his own people. But Jesus this is, this is totally Jesus here. This is just so, shows how awesome he is. He doesn't go to the Pharisees and say, I want you. He goes to this man, the sinner that is hated more than any other sinner. And he says, Levi, follow me. And it says that's what Levi did. Levi gets up and follows him. He says, I know what you've done. I know that you're a traitor. I know that people despise you. I know you're a sinner, but I want you. But notice something here. In these three stories, we clearly see God's grace and how Jesus interacts with these men. But don't get the idea that there isn't a cost to following Jesus. It says that Levi left everything to follow Jesus. He left everything to follow Jesus, and that is a common theme throughout the Gospels. Disciples leave everything to follow Jesus. Here's what that means. This may look different for every, for every person, but what this means for all of us is that these men are realizing, they're clearly seeing what we saw with the paralytic. They're clearly seeing that Jesus isn't just a teacher. They're clearly seeing that he isn't just a good guy because you don't leave everything for that. They're seeing that he is God. 
He is God, the God of the universe come to earth. And that's why they're leaving everything to follow him. So here's what that means for us. There's a reason that Jesus, in, in some passages in the Bible, he says things like, to follow me, you have to hate your family. That's extreme. You have to hate your mom. You have to hate your dad. You have to hate your brother. You have to hate your sister to follow me. What's he saying? If you're going to follow me, the things that you love most on this earth better look like hate in comparison to how much you love me. I'm the God of the universe, and I demand that because that's what I deserve. He demands all of our worship because that is what he deserves. And so when people give up everything to follow him, they're realizing that he deserves it, right? He deserves it. So Jesus cannot be competing with your family, with your money, with your job. Those are all good things, but they can't compete with Jesus. And he deserves all of us. He deserves our whole life because he deserves it. What's better than Jesus? Nothing. Haven't you seen that your whole life, Christians? What's better than Jesus? Nothing. Nothing at all. And Levi realizes this, so he's willing to leave everything to follow him. What happens next is amazing. Levi is so happy that he throws a party for all the other sinful people in town. And isn't that appropriate response? When you realize the grace of God, you, you celebrate, right? You celebrate. And when you realize the grace of God, you don't want to go to heaven alone. So you want to get your friends involved. So he throws this party and he invites all his sinful friends to come meet this guy that is worth leaving everything for. And the Pharisees, they see this and they, they don't get it, right? Jesus, you're supposed to be a teacher. You're supposed to be a moral teacher. How are you hanging out with these sinners? What are you doing? How can you hang out with these people? How can you hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes? This doesn't make sense. You're supposed to be clean. How can you hang out with the unclean? And listen to Jesus' response. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus calls himself a doctor. What do doctors do? They hang out with sick people, right? They hang out with sick people. Imagine this scene. You get the flu, and you go to the doctor, and he walks in, introduces himself, and says, so why are you here? And you're like, well, my throat hurts. I got the chills, my head hurts, and I can't stop throwing up. And he goes, wait, you're sick? You got to get away from me if you're sick. I got an important meeting tomorrow, and I can't, get, I can't catch anything. We, you got to get away. Get out of here. That would never happen because a doctor's job is to hang out with sick people, right? A doctor works with sick people. And Jesus says, I'm a doctor. I'm the physician. I've come for the people who are messed up. That's who I'm here for. And there's irony here in what Jesus says. There's irony here in what Jesus says because the Pharisees, he says, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the sinners. And the Pharisees are sitting here thinking that they're the righteous ones. They're, they're sitting here thinking they're healthy. They think that they don't need a doctor. Jesus is saying, oh, you guys, you guys questioning me, you, you religious leaders, you don't need me. I'm a doctor. You're, you're, you're healthy. You don't need a doctor. You can just ignore me. But Jesus knows that's not true. We all know that's not true. The Pharisees need Jesus, but they don't think they do, right? It's not that the Pharisees don't need Jesus. They just don't think that they need Jesus. Here's what that, here's what that means for us. Here's the implication for us. Everyone here, everyone in this room is either sitting with the tax collectors and sinners or you're sitting with the Pharisees. Either you're a tax collector and a sinner in this story who realizes, yeah, I messed up, <laughs> 
I'm messed up, and I need grace. I need Jesus, or you're the Pharisee. You're the Pharisee who's been sitting here, and as I've been talking about the unclean, you're looking around at all the people who are more unclean than you. <laughs> you're, you're, you're writing down all the good things you do that make you clean, that show that you don't need a doctor. Well, I lead an ABF, and I've done that for years. I get up early to meet with my group. You know, I gave a lot of money last week, right? We had this big offering. You know, this is amazing amount supporting West Park. If only people knew how much of that was me. I'm a good person, right? I know the bad people. I know the dirty people. That isn't me. If that's you this morning, you're sitting with the Pharisees. But the Pharisees needed Jesus. They just didn't know it. <laughs> they needed Jesus as much as the tax collectors needed Jesus. They just didn't know it. They had no idea. You see, to follow Jesus, you have to admit that you're broken. You have to admit that you're messed up. Jesus didn't come to affirm you and say, you're okay. You're good. He came to call sinners to turn from their sins and follow him. And the truth is, church, there are no healthy people. There are no healthy people. If you think you are, you're mistaken. We're all like the leper. We're all unclean. We're all separated from God, and we can't clean ourselves up. There's a famous play by Shakespeare, Macbeth. And in this, this play, uh, Lady Macbeth, she commits a murder. She's part of a murder at the beginning. And, and later on, she starts to feel this intense guilt over this murder. And so at one scene, and it's one of the most well-known scenes of the whole play, she's looking at her hands, and she sees blood on them, right? She's imagining that her hands are dirty with blood. And she starts scrubbing and scrubbing, and scrubbing, and she's yelling, get out, Spot, get out, get out. She's trying to make herself clean any way that she can, but the blood won't come off. That's you if you're trying to earn your salvation. That's you if you're trying to make yourself clean through your works. You can't do it. You can't do it. But we saw clearly in these stories that Jesus came for the unclean. He came for the unclean. All you have to do is run to him. All you have to do is admit your need to him. All you have to do is bow down on his feet and say, Jesus, I know I'm dirty. I know I'm a sinner. Make me clean. You're the only one who can make me clean. And his answer will be the same answer that he gave to the leper. I will be clean. I will be clean. I'll close with this. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament and I've probably shared it in here one of the few times I've, I've spoken. One of my favorite stories is Hosea. I go back to it over and over again. It's kind of it's hidden in the Old Testament, but it's a wonderful story. And in this story, if you're not familiar with it, Hosea is a prophet. He's a godly man, right? He's a man that God speaks to. He's a messenger of God. Well, God gives Hosea a message. He says, Hosea, go get married. Hosea's like, okay, who do I marry? He said, go marry a prostitute, Right? Go marry a prostitute. Go marry a sinner. Here's this godly man, and God says, go marry a prostitute. If he was around during Jesus' time, she would be at that party with Levi. She's, a, she, she's a, a, a dirty, sinful woman. So he goes, he marries her, he brings her into his house, and we would assume as a godly man he treats her well, right? They have children, he takes care of her, right? He, he, he protects her, he provides for her. This godly man, we would think she'd just be overjoyed, right? Overjoyed to have this godly man take care of her. But she turns away from Hosea, she goes back into her sinful life, and goes to be with other men. What would we, what would we do? What would you do? What would I do? What would we think that Hosea would do? I'd say forget her, right? 
Forget her. We gave her a shot. Forget her. She wants that sinful life. Let her have it. Let her go, whatever. Move on to the next one. But God gives Hosea a message, and he says, Hosea, go get her back. (laughs) Go get her back. And so we learn that, that when he goes to get her back, she is being sold as a slave. She's hit rock bottom. Sold as a slave, and it gives you the price that she's being sold for, and it's like half of the normal price. We can assume that she's not desired. No one really wants her. She has to be on, you know, they, 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 they've marked down the price just to try to get someone to take her. So imagine that scene. Here's this woman. She had a chance, right? She had a chance, and she blew it. She turned around. She went to be with, to be with other men. She's hit rock bottom, and she's standing there being sold. And not only is she being sold, but she's being sold for nothing. So there's probably beautiful women beside her that, that, that are much more desirable than she is. But all of a sudden, in the back of the room, maybe she hears a voice. She hears a voice saying, I want her. I want her. And I'll do whatever I have to do to get her back. Imagine her and her shame looking up and realizing, that's Hosea, right? That's the, that's the guy I left. That's the one I turned my back on to live this life of sin. And he wants me back. Christian, that's your story right? That is your story. That's it. You turned your back on God. You turned your back on God, but then Jesus came, and he lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, and he died the death that you deserve on your cross to get you back, to get you back. If you don't know him, if you're sitting here and you are unclean, if you're sitting here and you're still in your sins, he is the only way to be made clean. You can have a relationship with God through Jesus' finished work on the cross. So get to know him this morning. Run to him this morning. Do what the leper did. Bow at his feet and say, Jesus, make me clean. Let's pray.